0: Good morning and welcome to Calvary Church Online. We want to thank you for joining us this morning. You're joining us in the middle of a series that we're calling Be the Countercultural Church. Now, we've done a few weeks in the series already and I thought it'd be a good time to have a little recap as we get started. The first week we talked about the culture or the context of Corinth and we reminded ourselves that regardless of the culture, in which the church gets planted, the church will always be countercultural because only the church has the priorities and the values of the gospel, and all of the cultures going in one direction, which often means the church will go in another. So, after the context of Corinth on that first week, we then looked at the centrality of Christ, and we said the differentiating point between church and all surrounding cultures is that Christ is primary, he's the center. And then we talked about the commission of the church. The church is called to follow Christ, to have him in the center and to live lives and our, have our communities wrapped around him. Well, the second week we uh, talked about how disunity can become community, and we looked at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul speaks to the division and the debate that he's finding in the Corinthian church. And he appeals for unity and community. He then presents obstacles that are actually perpetuating the disunity. He identifies them. And then he says the resolution comes as Jesus is the absolute center of centers. And we've reminded ourselves of our little formula, absolutes, convictions, preferences, and said that we will only be a community in concert centered on Christ, as we make the absolutes the center, have our convictions outside of those and our preferences all the way on the outside, sacrificing our interest so that other people can have their interest accomplished. Last week, Carlos talked about the centrality of the cross and how the cross is not just a historical event on which Jesus died to pay for our sins and bring us back to God, The cross is also a trajectory for life. It's kind of our launching pad that not only launches Jesus, it needs to be launching us to live countercultural lives with the cross in the center. And if you remember, Carlos gave a couple of homework assignments that I'll remind you of. He said we need to engage with encouragement. Did you do that this week? Practice patience. I know you had some opportunity for that one. How are you doing? and lead with love. You see, those three things say that the cross isn't something we just look back on. The cross is something that gives us energy and power, momentum, as we move out into life, into our communities, into our network of relationships. Well, this morning we come to the next section of 1 Corinthians. In fact, we're gonna pick up the rest of chapter one. But before I read, 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 18, I want to make an observation. I hope you're tracking with me and that this will be significant to you. So if you have your Bibles or have your iPad, your phone, whatever you use, I want you just to look at the headings. So forget about the verses at this point. Look at the headings. The heading over verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 1 says, a church divided over leaders. And that's where we talked about disunity that they're experiencing, moving to unity. And then if you look at the beginning of chapter three, it says the church and its leaders, and if you read what's going on in chapter three, you'll see it's disunity of leaders moving to unity again. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter one, Paul quotes some of the conversation going on in Corinth, and and some of the people say, well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. In chapter three, verse four, he repeats the same thing. Some of you are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, what's going on? It's almost as if in verse 17, when Paul mentions the cross of Christ, that launching pad, it forces him to think about the cross, all the difference that it makes, and he goes on an excursus, a rabbit trail, a little bit of a diversion, but this diversion isn't really a diversion. This is a diversion actually into the center which needs to be the center of our lives as well. So let's begin reading at 18, Paul's excursus, which was launched in his mind when he mentions the cross. So here's what he writes beginning in 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, what I want to do in looking at this wisdom of God, wisdom of the world kind of thing, is to um, compare and contrast the syndrome of but I and the radical message of God, but God. But I versus but God. I know that when I say, but I, many of you struggle with that particular syndrome. Let me give you a couple of examples. Do you ever recognize in your mind what you should do, what you really want to do, but you don't wind up doing it? So for example, you may say to yourself, I really should exercise and get in shape, but I am really tired and I don't feel like doing it right now. How about this one? You know, I really should join a small group to learn more about God and to love people and be loved by them in this community, but I'm kind of introverted and I don't make friends too easily. How about this one? I want to get my finances in control. I really think that would honor God, that would benefit other people. Our household would be more in order, but I like to spend money. You know, I think I need to change my diet a little bit. Maybe I I need to eat more quail and quinoa, tofu, but I love butter and bacon and sugar. Or maybe you think, you know, every once in a while they say at Calvary Church that I should take 15 minutes a day, read the Bible a little bit, figure out what God's saying through it, and then seek to live those things out. And Pray that God would energize me, open my eyes to what's there and help me live out those realities. Maybe I should spend more time with God, but I'm not really a morning, morning person. And by the time the end of the day rolls around, I'm too tired to do that. Maybe some of you are thinking, you know, it's time I make an appointment with a doctor. I haven't had an annual physical in a decade. But I don't like to go to the doctor. They're always poking and prodding. And have you seen how much money a physical cost? You see, we all live with the but-eye syndrome. In our minds, we map out a future preferred destination. In our minds, or we hear from other people what a preferred future would be. This is what I want. This is what I want life to be. I need to be there we even may execute a plan in our minds. We even may even put it to paper. We put it, a, we put it on a slip. We draw pretty pictures. But then the butt-eye syndrome kiboshes the whole thing, and you never get to realize the plan. The butt-eye syndrome is something that we are all personally familiar with. Well, I've got some uh, good news. Not really good news, but I've got some good news. The bud Syndrome isn't just part of your story, it's a really common theme in the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I've got this really cool job for you to do. I want you to leave your hometown, leave everything you're familiar with, leave your culture, and go to another place, and you start my people. What does Abraham say? But I am too old to do that, God. Or how about Moses? God says, Moses, you were raised in Egypt. Now you're out here in the wilderness kind of wandering around. I want you to go back to Egypt. You're familiar with the surroundings. And I want you to walk into Pharaoh's presence. And I want you to demand that Pharaoh let my people go. How does Moses respond? Well, God, I'd like to, but I am really not a very good speaker. Send somebody else. How about Gideon? Remember Gideon? God shows up to Gideon, and God says, Gideon, I've got a job for you. I want you to be the deliverer of my people from the Midianites. The Midianites keep swarming in. They're kind of beating up on God's people. Gideon, I want you to be the judge, you to be the savior and deliverer. What does Gideon say? But I am the least of all the people in my tribe. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want you to be my mouthpiece. I want you to be my prophet. I want you to speak my words to people. A lot of the time, they're not gonna listen, but I want you to be my prophet. Jeremiah says, but I am too young for that job. I've seen prophets, they're mostly older guys. I'm a young guy, but I'm too young, I can't do it. Esther, Esther, I want you to walk into the king's presence and save Israel, Esther says, but I haven't been called by the king for like a whole month. And if you walk into his presence and he doesn't accept you, he kills you. Peter, fishing with Jesus. Hey, Peter, throw the net on the other side of the boat. But I have been fishing all night and have caught nothing. See how that works? The but I syndrome isn't just something that affects us and keeps us from making the change that we believe we want to make and God wants us to make. The but-eye syndrome affected people throughout history, and it affects all the characters, most of the characters that we know from the Bible. Here's what I find really interesting. As you read through how God deals with all of the people that said but I can't do that for one reason or another, God never refutes their objections. God doesn't say, what do you mean, Abraham? You're not that old. Moses, what do you mean? You speak well enough. Hey, Moses, you're a great communicator. Jeremiah, come on. You're not really as young as you think you are. Esther, you've got great abilities. You can go, you know, wink your eyes a little bit. The king will accept you. Peter, come on and do God never makes light of the objections that are raised from the butt eye syndrome. God does not deny their inadequacies, but if we confess, isn't that often our strategy? When other people raise a butt eye to us, we immediately object or deny their inadequacies. We often deny our inadequacies, and what are we doing? We continue the but-eye objection by thinking the solution is a butt eye solution. But the butt eye syndrome will not be solved with a butt eye solution. Oh yeah, before we move on, the butt eye syndrome was alive and well in Corinth. Now we don't have the exact words that are used, but it doesn't take a genius, it doesn't even take too much forethought to be able to spin them out. Maybe things like this were said in Corinth. I've competed in the games. I've done these things. And maybe someone else comes and says, yes, I know that, but so-and-so won. And what did the Corinthians immediately say? But I will win next time. Someone else stands and says, I own a very large estate. Someone else stands, but I own a bigger estate. I will win the day. The butt-eyes were running rampant in Corinth, and here's the reason. The main values of Corinth were achievement and accumulation. Achievement was all about butt-eye, climbing the ladder through education, through discipline, through hard work, all those things. And the butt-eye of accumulation, I've got a bigger estate, I've got more followers, I've got more money. The butt-eye syndrome was running wild in Corinth. What does Paul do? Well, what a lot of the orators of Paul's day did, and what a lot of speakers today do, they basically flatter and praise their audience. And the reason they do that is they're trying to get the audience then to reciprocate. So if I can build up my audience, if I can praise them, if I flatter them, then maybe they'll say nice things and do nice things to me. Uh, That's not Paul's strategy. So when Paul moves from the Bud-Eye syndrome down to personal application, here's what he writes. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things. God says to them, You weren't wise. You weren't influential. You weren't noble. Instead, you were foolish and weak. I would love to have seen the expression on the Corinthians' faces as they're hearing read this particular section from Paul. What's Paul doing? He's insulting his audience. In a sense, he's making his point by saying, you all live in a culture of but I. You will live in a culture of self-help. You will live in a culture of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, accomplish and achieve on your own, accumulate all these things, and what has it gotten you? You'll never solve your problem. Uh, Whenever I read those verses, I'm reminded. A couple years ago, I was speaking at the University of Illinois, and we were in an auditorium. I am speaking to a number of students, and right after the service, after the talk, An area pastor, I didn't know who he was, he came up and he said, uh, Charles, I'm an area pastor. I figured I'd come over to hear you. I've heard a lot about you. People refer to you as the insulting pastor. Every once in a while I hear that. Charles, you insult people. Well, I just want you to know, based on 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, I'm in pretty good company. I don't mean to insult people, um, but Paul certainly does that here as he personally applies the butt-eye syndrome." But that's not the end of the story. The but I moves to a but God solution. Here's how it shows up. In verses 27 and 28, we've already read 27. Uh, I left off the emphasis of the beginning of verse 27. But God, in the midst of a but I culture, in the midst of the but I syndrome, God will not be silenced, it's but God. They're actually my favorite Two words in the Bible. I don't have a favorite verse. I don't really have a favorite passage. I like a lot of verses and passages, but I do have two favorite words. But God. We live in a but-eye culture. We live, in a but, we live with the but-eye syndrome. The real difference comes from but God. Now I want to read those verses on the screen uh, because whether you know it or not, Paul is actually reflecting on and kind of semi-quoting verses from the Old Testament. Here's what he says but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are, to nullify the things that are, so that in no way we will boast before him. Paul's thinking of verses from Jeremiah. And so if you read that, some of you remember these verses from Jeremiah 9. See if you can't, hear Paul's echo of these particular verses. Here's what Jeremiah wrote. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom. Let not the strong boast in their strength. Let not the rich boast in their riches. Let not the one, but, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. But God boasts in him, not in all the things that we can bring about by living out the but-I syndrome. As you read through the scripture, you see a great reversal, and it appears fairly regularly. Um, Let me just uh, mention a couple particular verses. Toward the end of Genesis, in fact, in the very last chapter of Genesis, Joseph is now with his brothers. Uh, their father has passed away. And the brothers are nervous that Joseph now will uh, kind of bring about a little bit of retribution on them for having sold him to the Egyptians as a slave. And Here's what Joseph says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. In Psalm 73, the psalmist writes, My flesh and blood may fail, but God is my strength. In the New Testament, Matthew 19, with human, Jesus says, with human beings, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The but-eye syndrome is nothing but a dead-end road. You may be able to accumulate and you may be able to achieve more than your neighbors and more than your friends, but you're never going to be able to accumulate. You're never going to be able to achieve what our hearts and souls need and long for most. It's almost as if God says, of course, you're not smart enough. Of course, you're not strong enough. Of course, you're not good enough. Of course, you're not spiritual enough. Or maybe it would say it like this. You are alienated and separated from God, but God through Jesus solved the problem. You were burdened with an enormous debt, but God through Jesus solved the problem. You've been living as slaves in prisons, addicted to this or that, but God through Jesus brought the solution. You're experiencing the pollution that sin brings, Whether that's internal pollution of hatred and racism, whether it's the the external pollution of just the things depravity brings and everything's a mess and nothing seems to fit and everything's wearing down, but God brings cleansing and God makes the difference. You know what I like about Paul? He's kind of an equal opportunity personal applier. He not only applies the butt eye syndrome to the Corinthians. He applies the but-I-but-God difference to himself. In 2 Corinthians, all the way over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, Paul's coming off of a chapter in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 where he lists all of his failures almost. He's been beaten all these times. He's been whipped. He's been shipwrecked. He's been in prison. All these things that would probably bring PTSD to most of us. He's experiencing them all. And then he says this. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, God doesn't show up and say, my grace is sufficient for you. After Paul lists only all of those terrible things that happen, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. When Paul mentions his thorn in the flesh, So here's what's going on in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. Paul lists all these horrible things that happened to him as he sought to follow God and continue what Jesus started. And then he says in chapter 12, but rather than God making my life easier, I have a thorn in the flesh. And you know what? We're never told what that is. Exegetes, commentators, preachers have all kind of guessed what it was. Some people say it was his eyesight. You know, at the end of some of Paul's letters, he, he says, I'm writing in these big letters. Maybe he didn't see too well. Other people said, well, based on all the junk that happened in eleven, Second 2 Corinthians 11, maybe he did have PTSD, and he's, he needs some kind of help that way. Others say, no, Paul had epilepsy. Paul struggled with anxiety. Paul had a speech impediment. Maybe he really stuttered. That's why, you know, he will often write, some of you say, I'm impressive in my letters, but when I show up and speak, ah, I'm not that impressive. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, but we do know Paul prayed three times that God would take it away. God, I don't want this weakness. I want you to remove it. I want to be strong, but I want to stand against all this. And what does God say? But God said, my grace is sufficient right where you are. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul applies all that but I stuff of accumulation and achievement and the but God difference, that great reversal, he applies them to his life. He says, I'm living that story. This isn't just a message that I'm giving to you. It's a message that I've lived. I've read it in the scripture. I'm living it and I'm sharing it with you because the gospel message as it is lived out by us, and as we continue that story, we will bear some of the twists and turns that we read in the original outworking of that story as well. Well, we've kind of done a but I and a but God, but there are three buts to this message. The last but is the but now, but now. And some of you are kind of bottom line, but now kind of people. Okay, Charles, So we talked about the but-eye syndrome. We talked about the but-God reversal and how God takes our weakness and all of our efforts that really can't bring about transformation and change, uh, but God will bring about the reversal. But what do I do now? What about now? But now. You know, all human beings have at least one thing, in they have many things, around. one thing they all have in common. though. All human beings want to change. And so just to kind of personalize this a little bit, I know you may be watching from your bedroom, your kitchen, your living room, your dining room, out on your porch, wherever you're watching. I want you to think of three things that you would like to change. You'd like to change about yourself. Maybe you want to change your health. Maybe you want to change your spiritual maturity. Maybe you want to change some of your habits. Maybe you would like to get rid of some kind of an addiction. Maybe you want to change your love. You want to change your finances. You want to change your marriage and the part that you can do. You want to change your family. You want to change your demeanor. Whatever you want to change, just write what are a couple things you want to change? How does our culture tell us to change? What's required to change? Well, two things always appear interestingly. They appear in the Corinthian church too, and Paul actually speaks to them in 1 Corinthians chapter one toward the end. The first thing that we think we need is we need knowledge. We need to know, we need to learn the secret. If I could learn the secret of this diet, if I could learn the secret of reading the Bible, if I could learn the secret of prayer, I need to learn something that I don't know. I need more information. The other way people, I need more education. The other strategy is I need power. I need discipline. I need strength. I can't do all this stuff. I try and try. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not good enough. I need education, knowledge, or power. What does Paul contrast in chapter one? Our culture has wisdom that's not really wisdom. And our culture talks about power that's not really power. The gospel is wisdom, but it appears as foolishness to those that don't accept it. And the gospel brings power as the Spirit brings it into our lives. Real wisdom and real power don't come from the cultural context. They come from God through Jesus, the gospel. Let me mention a a couple of things that we need to do in the but now section of life. According to the wisdom of God, according to the wisdom of the gospel, according to what Jesus calls us to do, according to living out the trajectory of the cross, the first thing that we have to do is to acknowledge our inadequacies. Not deny them, not pretend they don't exist, not try to overcome them, not try to hide them from people, not try to pretend that they're not there. The first thing we have to do is to acknowledge inadequacy. You know, the first step in all 12-step programs begins with an acknowledgement of the problem, I'm stuck. The first step in any change that you will ever make and I will ever make begins with an acknowledgement of the problem. The first step in getting to a healthier, stronger, more fit life is the acknowledgement that you're not fit and healthy right now. The first step to spending more time in prayer and reading the Bible more is to admit that you're not doing enough of that now. You've got to acknowledge your inadequacy, acknowledge the problem, own it. It's not powering up or trying to smarten up with a butt eye. It's acknowledging your weakness, acknowledging your frailty, acknowledging that you're not smart enough and you're not strong enough and you're not bright enough and you're not spiritual enough and you're not good enough. Acknowledge the inadequacy. That's always the first step in change. That's always the first step in coming to Jesus, acknowledging your need. But it doesn't end there. The second step is to gamble on grace. Now, I chose the gamble word on purpose because before you take that step of faith, it kind of feels like a gamble. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this about God, but at least this has been my experience, and I think it's the experience of a lot of people in the Bible. God doesn't give you the grace you need until you need it. God doesn't give you the strength you need until you need it. If you're like me, you want the feelings of strength before they are really needed. You want the solution to the problem before you really need the solution. But God always shows up just in time, but never super early. I often ask, don't want to do anything until I feel moved to do it. Well, the gamble on grace is even though you don't feel like it, you're going to do it anyway. Even though it doesn't seem like you're going to be able to accomplish it, you step out, you gamble, you trust, we have faith. We gamble, we trust, we have faith. The Christian life, the life of following Jesus is the life of acknowledging our weakness, our inadequacy, our lack, our foolishness, and then stepping out and trusting God as we continue what Jesus started. You know, I do need to uh, say that, and I put that at the end. Because acknowledging your inadequacy and gambling on grace, that, that's not the pathway to accomplishment and accumulation. That's the pathway as we continue what Jesus started. In fact, we should be hearing in our minds the echo of what Jesus prayed. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Understanding what the gospel's calling us to, understanding what Jesus started, understanding what he wants us to accomplish, and then we acknowledge our inadequacy to do that and to live that and experience that. And we gamble on grace as we move out Continuing what Jesus started. I sat in my office uh, a couple days ago and thought to myself, imagine it's 50 years from today. It'll be 2070, not 2020. What will life be like? Well, all of the high school seniors that are graduating, they're all going to be uh, married and many of them grandparents by then. Many of us aren't going to be here. Some of you are here, and you're going to be really old by then. And my guess is in 2070, when people gather in casual conversation or people sit in small group or people gather in churches or people just talk in their business, they're going to say, remember the COVID pandemic 50 years ago? Remember what it was like to be shut in and locked down and Nothing was open, and you couldn't go to church. You couldn't go to a restaurant. You couldn't go out. You had to wear a mask, had to stay away from people. Remember what it was like back then? It was terrible. Everything was closed. The schools were shut down. You couldn't be with people. I wonder if we will be able to say, yeah, 2020, there was a COVID pandemic that affected the world, that affected Southerton and Hatfield and Dublin and Percocet and Philadelphia. But God, in the midst of those circumstances that none of us would choose, in our weakness, in our place of foolishness, not knowing what to do, those people at Calvary Church 50 years ago, they acknowledged their inadequacy. They gambled on grace. They continued what Jesus started. And things are radically different in 2070 because of how they lived in 2020. We can make that imagination and that dream real by acknowledging inadequacy, gambling on grace, and continuing what Jesus started right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as you look down on us and you see our needs and you see our lacks and you see our weaknesses and you see our foolishness, you see all of those things. And you see us scrambling around with the butt-eye syndrome, thinking that we're going to accomplish it by learning a few more things and by practicing a few more things and getting the right track and kind of powering up and being more disciplined. Lord, help us to put a big butt God in the middle of all the butt eyes and help the butt eye syndrome to be swallowed up with the butt God resolution. May we begin to bring that about right now as we live out the acknowledgement of our inadequacies, our gambling on grace as we continue what Jesus started. We pray in his name.